Let me ask you to turn to Zechariah chapter 9 this evening. Coming down towards the end of our study in the Minor Prophets, we have one more book to go. We have uh, one more sermon from this passage after tonight, and then we'll be in Malachi. Tonight we want to look at Zechariah chapter 9 through 11. The question is often brought up, would you be willing to die for Christ? Would you, as a Christian, a follower of Christ, would you be willing to die for Christ? We talked about that this morning. And we, we've put some thought to that. If someone were to walk into this building this evening with a gun and said, if you reject Christ, you're free to go. But if you're going to stand for Him, then you're going to die. And most of us have given thought to that sort of scenario. What would we do if we were put under the gun, literally speaking? Would we stand for Christ or would we reject Him? And because we believe we're pretty loyal people and we're pretty valiant when it comes to the things of uh, when it comes to spiritual things, we reply that we would indeed stand in that case. We'd stand for Christ and accept the consequences no matter what they are. But because our heart is deceitful and it often puts ourselves in a better light than we really are sometimes, the best way to determine if we are willing to die for Christ is to answer a different question. And that is, are we willing to live for Christ? The question of whether we will die for Christ is important. But perhaps that question is seen most clearly in your day-to-day living. Are you willing to make right choices now for Christ? Okay, so, so we could pose a question that would go as follows. Suppose a person offered you their retirement home. It had everything that you ever wanted. Perhaps it was located in a mountainous, quiet, peaceful area in a perfect climate with a stream running through your backyard that was fed by the highest waterfall around, and exotic birds would feed from your hand, the offer stood that you could live in this place, this retirement home, for the rest of your life on two conditions. One, you could not sell it because the owners wanted to pass it on to their uh, grandkids who were, were still too young to inherit it at this point. But you're free to, to live in it until you die. So you could not sell it. Number two, you have to give up your your current house and all your assets to move there. Now, that doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal, but the only other problem to this retirement home that's being offered to you is this. The closest church is four hours away. And so now you're going to have to give up to doing something that is of vital importance in order to enjoy a, a cush plush type of lifestyle. Or suppose someone made you an offer of a quarter of a million dollars per year for the rest of your life. The only catch is that you have to work every Sunday and Wednesday. Would you take it? Would you give up your responsibility to obey Christ to not forsake the assembling of, of, our, of yourself together as Hebrews talks about, for the sake of a few more dollars, a little bit more security with regard to your bank account. 
How much is your relationship to Christ worth to you? How much is your relationship to Christ as it's displayed in your relationship to the church worth to you? That, that gets more at the heart of where we are than a question like, will you die for Christ? Because it's, it's sometimes that type of thought is so far out there, we probably will never have to experience that type of thing. thing. We may have to, but, but most likely we won't. And so we have to ask the question, how much are we willing to live for Christ now? And that's what Zechariah 9-11 through addresses. Are we willing to accept the, the Messiah or are we going to reject Him? Let's begin reading in Zechariah chapter 9. We'll read through uh, verses 1 through 8. The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach with Damascus, Damascus as its resting place. For the eyes of men, especially of all the tribes of Israel, are toward the Lord. And Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, for Tyre built herself a fortress and piled up silver like dust and gold like the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will dispossess her and cast her wealth into the sea and she will be consumed with fire. Ashkelon will see it and be afraid. Gaza, too, will writhe in great pain. Also Ekron, for her expectation has been confounded. Moreover, the king will perish from Gaza and Ashkelon will not be inhabited. And a mongrel race will dwell in Ashdod. And I will cut off the pride of the Philistines, and I will remove their blood from their mouth and their detestable things from between their teeth. Then they also will be a remnant for our God and be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron like a Jebusite. But I will camp around my house because of an army, because of him who passes by and returns, and no oppressor will pass over them any more. For now I have seen with my eyes. Zechariah 9-11 through 11 talks about the, the rejection of the coming Messiah. And this is primarily focusing on Christ's first advent, His first coming. That is, what has already passed. What we ha- had happen in, in uh, I forget when He was born, was somewhere around 27 B.C. and then He, he died around 3 or 4 A.D. Uh, but, but this is what we're talking about. We're, we're talking about Jesus first coming to the earth and His Subsequent rejection. Now, when we get to chapters 12 through 14, which is still to come, we're going to see his acceptance or his reception at his second coming. Because when he comes to the earth for the second time, all will recognize him as king. Because that's when he will be uh, king on this earth during the millennial reign. So we'll get to that next week. But what we want to focus on is Jesus' first coming. And what you'll notice is a lot of what is talked about here has to do with with uh, prophecies referring to Jesus' first coming. And you'll notice some of the, uh, the, the, uh, the events that took place in His life. We see the first coming of the Messiah in chapters 9 and 10. Now, Zechariah begins with a word from the Lord on the judgment of the nations. The judgment of the nations begins with Tyre in verses 1-4. through 4. Now, Tyre was one of the most well-fortified cities in, in all the area. It, it was about a half hour, half hour, half mile off of shore over on the uh, Mediterranean coast. And it was uh, fortified to the point it had high walls all the way around. In fact, in some spots, up over 100 feet tall. And so it was very difficult to conquer this city, Tyre, that was set out on an island with huge walls. In fact, 
Shalmaneser tried to conquer it, but was unsuccessful. He took five years trying to conquer it. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, was unsuccessful after trying to attack it for 13 years. Now, it came about that, as you know from history, that Alexander the Great came into that region and, and he went after Tyre and he figured out a way to conquer this city. He took the rubble that was from the, the mainland city and he used that as a causeway to get out to the island and all his men crossed over and were able to conquer the city uh, easier uh, than the other gentlemen. And they, he finished in seven months compared to five and 13 years. Pretty impressive. And what happened was that the, the Philistines were watching. Notice verses 5 through 8 where we see these cities that are listed. You see Gaza, Ekron, uh, Ashkelon. You have uh, verse 6 towards the end. It said, I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. Okay, the Philistines were made up of the five cities which included uh, Ekron, Ashkelon, Gaza, Gath. You remember the, the giant Philistine, uh, Goliath, was from Gath. And then also Ashdod. Now, Gath and Ashdod are probably already conquered at this point, so it's, that's probably why they're not listed here. But we do have three of the Philistine cities. They had been watching over all these years, all these centuries, people trying to conquer Tyre. Nobody, nobody could do it because it was such a well-fortified city. Alexander the Great comes in, conquers the city, and, and then now they're, they're afraid. Now they're going to come after us. In fact, that's exactly what happens. Alexander the Great comes down. He, he spares Israel, amazingly, by the grace of God. He spares Israel, uh, by Jerusalem that is. And then he, he goes and conquers um, the Philistine cities. On his way down, he, he goes all the way down to Egypt and conquers Egypt. And then he comes back up and he has another opportunity to destroy Jerusalem, but instead he doesn't. So probably what is in view here in verses 1-8 through 8 is this, this coming... Uh, judgment that was going to come on these two cities through Alexander the Great. Most people understand it that way. It very well could be a a uh, prophecy of what's still to come in in the the final judgment that's going to come on the nations for rejecting God. But most people understand it to be to be what I just uh, explained. So. Now, what, what, uh, the point here is if God is going to use a wicked king, whether it be Alexander the Great or if it's still future, some other king, if God's going to use a wicked king to conquer the enemies and protect the territory of, of, of Jerusalem, Israel, how much more can He use a righteous king? Okay, so now He's pointing now to the Messiah. You've seen what can happen now with a wicked king, but now look what it's going to be like with with a, a loving, caring shepherd king. And that's in verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations. And his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. We have the triumph of the king at the end of chapter 9, verses 9 through 17. The arrival of the king begins here in verses 9 through 10. Now we have here in verses 9 and 10, we understand that verse 9 is talking about his first coming. That's why it says, He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. 
You know what that's referring to? The triumphal entry, right? What we're about to study in Mark. Mark chapter 11 talks about the triumphal entry. And in fact, many of the Gospel writers point back to this passage in Zechariah. This is the Messiah because this is what was going to happen with Him. He was going to come into the city on a donkey. On the colt, even the foal of the donkey. And, and so we understand that verse 9 is talking about the Messiah's first coming. Now, what we understand now that we look back on this is that the verse 10 is referring to His second coming. Notice the difference here. Okay, We have that He's humble. He's coming in peace. Verse 9, now verse 10. He comes as a conqueror. He says He's going to cut off and bring a bowl of war and so on. Notice the end. And His dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So His reign will be universal. Now, now think about this carefully. Was His reign when He came the first time universal in that all knees bowed to Him? No. He had many rejectors. Even His own people, His own family rejected Him at first. And, and many of the Jews, in fact, rejected Him. And so He went to the Gentiles with the message. So what verse 10 is talking about is the Messiah's coming, yes, but we know that it's talking about the Messiah's second coming. Now, what they didn't understand at that time that there was that there were two comings of Christ. They understood that the Messiah was coming in the future, but they didn't understand that there were two. And and what we'll see here is that most of nine through eleven talks about this first coming, with the exception of this verse ten here, and then uh, chapters twelve through fourteen, which we'll look at next time talks about His second coming. They saw it all as one. That's why I think the disciples were so confused when Jesus was here. They're saying, you're supposed to come and reign. You're supposed to come and sit on your throne. That's what Messiahs do. Why aren't you doing it? That's why we were talking about this morning that they came with swords ready to fight. They were ready to win this battle for Christ because He was supposed to reign as the Messiah. But what they didn't understand until after He died and rose from the dead was that there were two comings that Jesus said even while He was on the earth. I go away, but I'm coming again to receive you under Myself so that where I am, there you may be also. They didn't understand that at the time, but when they looked back on it, they understood. So we have this Messianic ruler uh, in verses 9-10. through 10. He, he, he comes. Notice, uh, notice the nature of His coming in, in verse 9. He... Uh, there's five descriptions of him of it at his first coming. That is, he will be king. He will be just. He will be endowed with salvation. There's some uh, deep spiritual truth in that phrase right there, that he will be endowed with salvation. That he will be humble and he will be riding on a donkey. Now, we'll talk about this when we look at the triumphal entry when we get into Mark, but I do want to just uh, whet your appetite a little bit this idea of riding in on a donkey we always think of with regard to being humble. That Jesus did it because He was being humble. And we do see here that He was humble in the fact that He did come in on a donkey. But you have to understand that in, in their day, um, they would often come in on a donkey. That is, a, a ruler of a land would come in on a donkey to signify peace. That they were coming in peace. See, you come in on a war horse and what are you saying there? You're saying that I'm coming to bring a sword. I'm coming with power. But Jesus doesn't come in that way. He says, I don't have to come in that way. I don't have to come with swords and spears to, in order to win this battle. I'm coming in peace. And that's why He rides in on a donkey, just like it was predicted in the Old Testament. 
Um, there, there may be a sense of humility there, but, but if it was simply for the sake of humility, he could have easily walked, right? But he does it in order to fulfill the Scriptures, yes, but also, I think, to, to show that he was coming in peace, that he's coming to bring peace. Then in verses 11 through 17, we have the vindication of Israel. Let's read those verses together. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, O prisoners who have hope. This very day I am declaring to you that I will restore double to you. For I will bend Judah as my bow. I will fill the bow with Ephraim, and I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and I will make you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and His arrow will go forth like lightning. And the Lord God will blow the trumpet and will march in the storm winds of the south. The Lord of hosts will defend them, and they will devour and trample on the sling stones, and they will drink and be boisterous as with wine. And they will be filled like a sacrificial basin, drenched like the corners of the altar. And the Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of His people, for they are as the stones of a crown, sparkling in His land, for what comeliness and beauty will be theirs. Grain will make the young men flourish and the new wine, and new wine the virgins. Now, when he's talking about Ephraim here in uh, verse uh, verse 13, he's talking about Israel. It's just another name for the northern kingdom of Israel. And so what, what Zechariah is doing now is he's giving hope to the people because it, it seems like a, a difficult circumstance in which they've gotten themselves. They've gone off to exile. Now they're back. And their, their city has been destroyed. Their temple is now uh, being rebuilt. And... And now it seems like their vindication, their uh, time in in, in a, a place where their oppressors are no more, seems far away. And and what what Zechariah is doing here is he's saying, listen, although it seems like verse eleven at the end of the verse, it seems like you're in a waterless pit. Like there's no way out. You can't float to the top. You're just stuck down in the waterless pit. You're without hope. The Lord's going to free you. You're going to receive some blessings, verses 13 through 15, because I am going to defeat your enemies and restore your kingdom. Verses 16 and 17 talk about the restoration of the kingdom that, that's going to come, which is a promise of, of primarily agricultural prosperity, which was a sign that of the Lord's blessing for them and even in the, in the millennial reign of Christ. Then in chapter 10, we have the restoration of Israel. Chapter 9 focused on the defeat of of the enemies and the coming of the true king. Now the focus shifts to the elect of the true king and and shows them that they they uh people will come from all nations to the promised land and share in their dominion with with this Messiah. So the present hope here in chapter 10 really is a gives us a flavor or a prototype of what's going to happen in the future. Many people will be blessed through this Messiah and through you as a people. <coughs> Excuse me. Because the millennium will be a culmination of God's kingdom program and His purpose for the people. So notice the exhortation in verses 1 through 2. Ask rain from the Lord at the time of the spring rain, the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and He will give them showers of rain, vegetation in the field to each man. For the teraphim speak iniquity, and the diviners see lying visions and tell false dreams. 
They comfort in vain. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted because there is no shepherd. The exhortation is in verse 1 primarily, and, and, and it is this. Ask rain from the Lord. In other words, expect that God is going to do what He has promised. He's just promised you in verses 16 and 17, the previous chapter, that He's going to provide agricultural blessings. So ask rain from the Lord. Ask God for what He's already promised you to do. And here is a principle that we can learn from that. God has given you some promises, so ask Him to fulfill those promises. Now, in order for you to ask that question, in order for you to ask God to fulfill His promises in your life, you have to know what His promises are for you. And, uh, and they are many. And some of them won't happen in this lifetime, but, uh, but many of them will. And so you need to know what those are so that you can ask God for those promises. That's the way that, that uh, Zechariah encouraged these people to play, pray. And then a second principle that we can learn from this is that we should look to the Lord alone for blessings. Unfortunately, they, like their fathers before them and their fathers before them, often looked to whom for their blessings? To idols, right? Or they looked to other cities or other countries. They tried to become buddies with these foreign nations that God said, you're not supposed to have any part with them. And now He's saying, listen, Look to God alone. He is sufficient to provide you with everything. You don't have to look anywhere else. Look to God alone. Then we see the overthrow of Israel's enemies in verses 3-5. through My anger is kindled against the shepherds, and I will punish the male goats. For the Lord of hosts has visited His flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like His majestic horse in battle. From them will come the cornerstone, from them the tent peg, from them the bow of battle, from them every ruler, all of them together. They will be as mighty men, treading down the enemy in the mire of the streets in battle, and they will fight, for the Lord will be with them, and the riders on horses will be put to shame. The point here is that God is going to overthrow Israel's enemies. And then he talks about the regathering of the nation in verses 6 through 12. God had made a covenant with the people Israel that He would restore their blessing to them. And this is going to take place still future for us in the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Now we turn to chapter 11 and we see this rejection of the Messiah at His first coming. Zechariah points us now to back to the Messiah at His first coming that for them it was still future, but he's saying, listen, when the Messiah comes, He will be rejected. He will be rejected. And so we see the utter hopelessness of Israel against the ultimate warrior in verses 1-3. through Israel is hopeless against the ultimate warrior, that is, uh, God and His wrath. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that a fire may feed on your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, because the glorious trees have been destroyed. Wail, O oaks of Bashan, for the impenetrable forest has come down. There is a sound of the shepherd's wail, for their glory is ruined. There's a sound of the young lion's roar, for the pride of, of the Jordan is ruined. This is not speaking of the region of Lebanon or the region of Bashan. Rather, it's speaking of the trees that represent strength from those nations. He's saying these trees that, that are set up for you that represent strength, they're, they're going to be wiped out. They're going to be devoured by the fire of God's wrath. And so you are utterly hopeless against this warrior. So don't 
Don't fight against Him. Why will this destruction take place? Why will Israel receive such great punishment from God through His wrath? Why will this happen? The answer is found in verses 4-14. through And that is because they have rejected the true shepherd. They've rejected the true shepherd. Uh, God begins in verses 4 through 6 by explaining to Zechariah how he ought to play the part of the true shepherd. He wants him to play out a, a scene for the people of Israel so that they can understand what's, what God's going to do and what the people are going to do against his son. Look at verses 4 through 6 with me. Thus says the Lord my God, Pastor the flock doomed to slaughter. He's talking to Zechariah here. Those who buy them slay them and go unpunished. And each of those who sell them says, Blessed be the Lord, for I have become rich. And their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of the land, declares the Lord. But behold, I will cause the men to fall, each into another's power and into the power of his king. And they will strike the land, and I will not deliver them from their power. So the reason for their... This judgment that we see in verses 1 through 3 is because they rejected the true shepherd. So now he's saying, listen, Zechariah, I want you to play the part of this shepherd. And I want, I want, you to show, I want to show you how the Messiah is also going to be rejected. And uh, so verses 7 through 14 now is, is Zechariah's enactment of these instructions that God has just given. Get ready because you're going to be rejected. Notice uh, verses 7 through 14. So I pastured the flock, doomed to slaughter, hence the afflicted of the flock, and I took for myself two staffs. The one I called favor, and the other I called union. So I pastured the flock. Then I annihilated the three shepherds in one month, for my soul was impatient with them, and their soul also was weary of me. Then I said, I will not pasture you. What is to die, let it die. And what is to be annihilated, let it be annihilated. And let those who are left eat one another's flesh. I took my staff favor and cut it into pieces to break my covenant which I had made with all the peoples. So it was broken on that day, and thus the afflicted of the flock who were watching me realized that it was the word of the Lord. I said to them, If it is good in your sight, give me my wages, but if not, never mind. So they weighed out thirty shekels of silver as my wages, and then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So I took the thirty shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Then I cut in pieces my second staff union to break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. The staff in verse 7 called favor is broken towards the end of the passage as is the covenant made with the nations. Probably referring to the Jewish colonies that were scattered among the nations because they had rejected the Messiah. And this idea of, of union is instead of unity among your people, Israel, I'm going to scatter you because you've rejected this shepherd. Notice the good shepherd, what he asks in verse 12. I said to them, If it is good in your sight, give me my wages, but if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels as my wages. good shepherd basically puts puts this question in front of the people Israel, okay? Remember, we're talking about the Messiah, Jesus Christ, at His first coming. He's basically asking this question, how much, Israel, am I worth to you? How much are you willing 
to, to sell me for? And, they, and he says, if you're going to give it to me, give it to me. Otherwise, never mind. And so they weighed out 30 shekels of silver. Does that number mean anything to you? It should, because that's exactly how much Jesus was sold out for. Remember in Exodus... Well, let's turn there. Exodus chapter 21, and then we'll look at the, the fulfillment of this passage in the New Testament. But let's begin with Exodus chapter 21. And what's sad about this is that the Messiah is sold at the same price as what a common slave would have been sold for. Exodus chapter 21. In verse 32. Moses has given some regulations as to how to handle day-to-day life. Notice verse 32. If the ox gores a male or a female slave. okay. In other words, to death. If an ox kills a slave. The owner shall give his master, the slave's master, 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be stoned. So in the Old Testament, 30 shekels of silver was the price of a common slave. That, that cleared the deal. Okay? They, they got killed by one of your animals. You need to pay them for what it would cost for them to replace him or her, that slave. 30 shekels of silver. So we know this is talking about the Messiah because of Matthew chapter 26. Turn there with me. Matthew chapter 26 quotes our passage from Zechariah. This is where the passage Zechariah, which is a prophecy, is fulfilled in the New Testament. It's fulfilled with the sale of Jesus Christ to the chief priests and scribes by Judas Iscariot. Notice chapter 26, verse 14. Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out thirty pieces of silver to him. Okay, so, so this is Israel, in effect, receiving this exact question. What is the Messiah worth to you? Their problem, obviously, is they rejected the Messiah. He's not the real thing. So we're willing to sell him for the price of a common slave. Push him off. And also, uh, chapter 27, verses 3 through, through 10, tell us how this also fulfills uh, the way that they spent their money. Remember what happened at the end when Judas uh, relents of what he did? He felt sorry for, for himself for having betrayed the Lord. Notice verse 3 of chapter 27 of Matthew. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, What is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, Is it not lawful to put them into temple treasury since it is the price of blood? And they conferred together and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. 
This is the fulfillment of Zechariah. Now, what can throw us off here is verse 9 says it's the fulfillment of what Jeremiah said. But we shouldn't be thrown off by that because Jeremiah is just a marker that was used as the, because it was the, the, at the front of the prophetic books Okay, the, the ones that, that, that they would have understood, they, they called the prophets as a whole Jeremiah. Or, for example, they would talk about other uh, aspects of poetry by calling them the Psalms, even though they weren't in the Psalms. So what, what, what uh, uh, Matthew is saying here is that this was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet because he's basically... Uh, summarizing, or, or he is the, the name that we're using to refer to the prophets. And what he's actually referring to, because, by the way, these, these, this prophecy doesn't show up in Jeremiah. This shows up in Zechariah. That's what, what your Scripture uh, index should tell you, or your, your margin should tell you, that that is from Zechariah, the passage we were looking uh, from. Turn back to Zechariah chapter 11. It's really a sad way to look at the Messiah, the one who had been promised for ages gone past. He was rejected just as the Scriptures had said He would be rejected. What I want you to notice now is verse 13. Because this is the fulfillment of what we just read. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. The money that was given to pay off this Messiah, to, to get rid of them, to get them off their hands, was, was used to buy a potter's field. And, and the, the phrase that I find very interesting is that, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. How little was Christ worth to the people of Israel? And then we need to think about ourselves because sometimes we're not too far off from where they live. How much is Christ worth to us? Or, or, or I could say it this way, how little is Christ worth to us? What would you be willing to give up if you could shed Christ from your life? If you could shed all of His commands and all of His obligations and expectations for you, what would you be willing to, to take in exchange for that? There should be nothing that comes between us and our relationship with Christ. And so we have this rejection of the Good Shepherd in, in verses uh, 7 through 14. And then in verses 15 through 17, we have a condemnation of the evil shepherd. Now, Zechariah turns and he says, Listen, you, you wanted this Good Shepherd, you rejected him, so here's what you're going to get instead. Verses 15 through 17. The Lord said to me, Take again for yourself the equipment of a foolish shepherd. For behold, I am going to raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for the perishing, seek the scattered, heal the broken, or sustain the one standing. He will not do any of those things. But instead, notice the end of the verse, but will devour the flesh of the fat sheep and tear off their hooves. Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword will be on his arm and on his right eye. His arm will be totally withered and his right eye will be blind. Okay, so from verse 16, you have to understand that this is not talking about the Good Shepherd, the Messiah, Christ. Because it says, I am going to raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for the perishing, who will not seek the scattered, who will not heal the broken, who will not sustain the one standing. 
but instead will devour the flesh of the fat sheep. Totally different from the good shepherd that was offered to them. That they rejected. So he says, listen, if you're going to condemn the good shepherd, then here is the evil shepherd for you. Who do you think that could be? Who is this evil shepherd that's going to lead Israel because they've rejected the Messiah? It's the Antichrist. It is talking about the Antichrist. It is, it is the one who is... Listen, if you want someone who is going to, to throw away all restrictions, you don't want to be bound by, by all these guidelines that the Good Shepherd's putting you under, then I'll give you someone who doesn't care about guidelines. And you know what? That means he doesn't care about your life either. He doesn't care about healing your sorrows. He doesn't care about healing your wounds or taking care of you or, or coming to your aid. He doesn't care about any of those things. In fact, He will devour you. You should have accepted the Messiah. And that, that is exactly what Israel is going to find out that is unbelieving Israel in the tribulation. That this man will rise up as their leader and they will love him for the first three and a half years until He turns on them at the midpoint of the tribulation and He comes down with judgment on them and comes down hard. And notice who raises up this, this man. Verse 16, For behold, the Lord is speaking here, I am going to raise him up. That is, God in some sense is behind it. Not in the sense that He is, he is responsible for this evil that's going to happen, but in the sense that He is sovereign over all things and His plan will come to pass. Because ultimately what this will lead to is the culmination of all of history to the point where the Messiah crushes the, the serpent under His heel. And that is where God will be glorified. Where not only will He be glorified, but He will be seen to be glorified. All people will recognize now that, that Christ is the true Messiah. the best care that we can possibly be under is the care of the Good Shepherd who will go to the extreme of dying for you. He does the exact opposite of what verse 16 talks about. This is what the Good Shepherd does. He cares for the perishing. Okay? He heals the broken. He seeks the scattered. He sustains the one standing. He doesn't go after us to devour us. He's not coming after us as our judge. That's what a Good Shepherd does. But the reign of... What a, what a devastating, discouraging way to end, a, end a, a sermon or a passage here. That the uncaring shepherd is going to come and lead these people into more harm. And that's why verse 17 shows us that that is not the end of the story. The, the care of the... or, or the, uh, the leadership of this uncaring shepherd is not the end of the story. Verse 17, Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword will be on his arm and on his right eye. His arm will be totally withered and his right eye will be blind. Verse 17 tells us that God will overpower this man. And then in chapter 14, 12 through 14, which we'll look at next time, there is glorious hope for the shepherd to come because he is going to reign. Though smitten, though he is killed, though he is slaughtered like a lamb, he is going to reign. He's going to come back triumphant and He will reign in the day of the Lord. And no one will be able to, to overcome His hand. No one will be able to strong arm Him. And so there is great hope here at the last part of verse 11, chapter 11 and, and the rest of this book that there is a shepherd who is coming 
to lead his flock. Let's turn to John chapter 10 because I want to show you what a good shepherd looks like. John chapter 10. Let's begin reading with verse 11. John chapter 10, verse 11. I am, Jesus says, the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand, not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Notice at the end of that last verse, verse 16, that they will be one flock. The idea of unity. Remember what happened before? Israel was unified. But then when they rejected this Messiah, He says, listen, you're going to be scattered. But Jesus says, listen, I have sheep who are not of this fold. I'm going to bring them in and they're going to be unified. Do you know what a good shepherd does? Do you see what was mentioned there twice? That He lays down His life for a sheep. Now, now this is something way beyond any earthly shepherd would ever do. Would, would an earthly shepherd ever give his life for the sake of a sheep? Possibly. But, but I don't know of any cases where that's ever happened. But Christ is unlike, well, we could say even better than the best shepherd we could have on earth in that He is willing to lay down His life for you. Not because you're something special, you're just a sheep. But because He, he, he decided to show His care to you. Do you believe the promises of God? Do you expect the coming kingdom of our Lord? Are you too captivated in the pleasures of this world? If you've accepted the Messiah who came once and is coming again, are you living for Him now? Are you ready? Or are you ready to throw Him out like a rented shepherd? Like, hey, how much is someone willing to give me for Him? I'll give Him up. He's kind of a bother anyway. He's got too many restrictions. What Zechariah here is teaching us through the Word of God is that, listen, those restrictions are good for you. He puts up those walls to care for you, to keep you from death. Those are good. You remove those restrictions and now, just like a hired hand would come in here not caring for the sheep, you go off and you're going to get slaughtered. Okay, We're, we're talking spiritually. We're talking metaphorically here. So, sometimes in our lives, we, we take a look out into the world and we see what seems to be such fun and pleasure and seems like these people are doing so well, why can't I have that? I mean, after all, what's the value of a shepherd that won't lead me to where I want to go? He's leading me down a path I don't want to go. He keeps putting barriers up. I feel so restricted. And if that's your mindset, if that's a continual mindset of you, yours, then you can expect that God will turn you over to what you ultimately desire. And He will allow you to go down that path and see how it goes, just like He does for Israel. Listen, take, 
take a take a, a jog down that path. See how that works out for you. And not not in order to rub it into the ground, but listen, if you're going to reject me, then just do it. Like like Revelation talks about, I don't want you to be cold or hot. If you're cold, I can work with that. Because then you recognize your coldness. If you're hot, yeah, that's great. I can use that. But if you're lukewarm, get off the fence. It doesn't help me. Because you think you can you can straddle between the world and what Christ wants, and that, that doesn't work. You gotta follow me with all that you got and recognize that those barriers are put up for a reason. They're not to be restrictive. They're to lead you to life. Isn't that what you really want? Isn't that what is best for you? The Good Shepherd knows what's best for you. Does He not? He knows. Not the pleasures of sin. There's no long-lasting benefits that come from the pleasures of sin. You will soon find out if you head down that path and, and are so opposed to His hand of guidance that like the people during the tribulation, that sort of lifestyle as advertised is not as great as it really appears. It's not all that special. They're lost. They're frustrated with life more than you are. It is not a worthwhile life, lifestyle to pursue. Are you living for Christ? Or are you just going through the motions? Are you just doing enough to get by? The answer to that question is revealed in your daily responses to choices that have to be made. Are you choosing right or are you choosing wrong? Are you choosing self or are you choosing others? Are you choosing self or are you choosing Christ? What, what are you doing on a day-to-day basis? Obviously, we all struggle. We can't be perfect. But our submission to Christ as our Good Shepherd or rebellion to Him and His commands reflects where our heart is. If you've accepted Messiah, then you are not rejecting His present leadership as a shepherd. If you've accepted Him, then you're not rejecting Him. That's the thing. It's not just a one-time thing. It's, it's, it's an ongoing thing. It's for the rest of your life. You're following the shepherd all the way till the end. Even if it means, like we talked about this morning, suffering and death. It may not be the Messiah that Israel is looking for, but that's the type of Messiah I want to follow. Because He's a good shepherd and He's willing to lay down His life for you. Are you willing to lay down yours for Him? Let's bow together in prayer. Lord, our life is in Your hands. We hold nothing back. There are times when we feel like we we can compartmentalize our Christian life, that we can put that in a box, set it aside, and then go about our daily life and then come back to it later when we need it, open it up and pull out what we need and then put it back on the shelf. But that is not what kind of following You expect of us. You expect that we give our whole selves to You, unlike what Israel, many of the people in Israel's history did. And we know that the only reason that we can follow You is because of Your grace. It is Your grace that sustains us. It's Your grace that keeps us It's Your grace that set us free. 
from the bondage of sin and set us on a path to righteousness, to holiness, to eternal life. There was nothing in us that you looked upon and said, wow, that's pretty impressive. I could use that. No, we were hostile towards you. We were your enemies. We hated you. We didn't want you as ruler. And then you chose us. You plucked us out of this world and decided to lead us. And we pray that that each one of us here would be uh, thinking and contemplating deeply about our heart's attitude, where we are spiritually. We can never take for granted our relationship with You. And so we want to think deeply about ourselves and these truths this evening. So we pray that You would just give us the strength to do so and help us not to go from this place and immediately fill it all up with with the busyness of the world and forget the grace that has been shown to us and the responsibility that we have to follow. Thank You for Jesus Christ, our Good Shepherd, who laid His life down for us so that He could be a ransom for many. We don't deserve it. All we deserve is Your wrath. And yet You showed us and poured out to us Your love. May we live for You. Live for the One, Jesus Christ, who died for us. And be willing, if necessary, to suffer persecution and even die if that's what it takes to make a stand for You. But we know that in many cases, we know lots of Christians, perhaps family members, who have died. They've gone through their whole lives and have never had to experience that sort of persecution where they had to stand for their faith to the point where they were burned at the stake or or shot in public. We may never have to experience that, but what we do want to do is show you that we do love you by living for you each moment, by making every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ and giving it all up for the sake of, of our Savior and for the Gospel so that we can grow to be more like Him that we can be counted as holy when You call us home and that many people will see us and not praise us, but glorify our Father in heaven. For it's in the name of our Savior that we pray. Amen.